You know, like most professions, when a pastor wants to relocate to a new church, he sends out his resume. Of course, a resume is a listing of his skills and traits and experiences, things that might be an asset to a congregation. Well, churches in need of a pastor, they read through these resumes and then they invite uh, candidates in for an interview. But a prospective pastor needs to be careful what he includes on his bio. Recently, I ran across the top 10 statements a pastor should not put on his resume. Top 10 statements a pastor should not put on his resume. Number 10, in the five churches I've faithfully served over the last two years. You don't want to put that. Number nine, my extensive counseling of church members has produced a rich source of illustrations for my sermons. Number eight, I have the stamina to preach hour-long sermons. Number seven, my personality type has provided me ample opportunity to develop a wide range of conflict resolution skills. Number six, I've been told every sermon I preach is better than the next. Number five, with a suspended driver's license, a car allowance won't be necessary. Number four, hobbies include pit bulls and automatic weapons. Not what you want from your pastor. Number three, I require Sundays off. Number two, I've learned to cope with financial crisis at every church I've served. And number one, I have five jokes that are so funny, I just tell them over and over and over. Well, I mentioned pastoral resumes because... There were critics in the church at Corinth who were questioning the apostle's resume or the lack thereof. His detractors were using this to cast doubt on his credibility. And in chapter 3, Paul opens with a reluctant defense. He says, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you? Are letters of commendation from you? A common practice in the early church, in the early days of Christianity, was for traveling preachers to carry with them letters of commendation or referrals from their home church. You know, even today when a ministry seeks our support or if a minister wants to speak or sing at Calvary Chapel, it's standard protocol for us to look for letters of commendation. A reference from someone we trust is a good way to validate the legitimacy of a person's ministry. And this was particularly vital in the early church. Christianity was still new. Believers in most cities were a persecuted minority. They were eager when help came from other quarters. The churches had to be cautioned that not everyone claiming to be of God was really from God. There were false prophets. That's why legitimate teachers carried with them letters of reference. It's interesting, even Paul participated in this practice. In Romans chapter 16, you'll read where he commends Phoebe to the church there at Rome. Later in 2 Corinthians 8, he commends Titus to this church. In fact, Paul's letter to Philemon was in reality a letter of commendation for a brother named Onesimus. But what Paul was careful to do for others, he saw no need to do for himself. For when he addressed the church at Corinth, he doesn't appeal to paperwork. 
No, Paul started this church. He preached the gospel to them. Its members were believers that he had led to the Lord. You would have thought the existence of the Corinthian church would have been enough to validate Paul's ministry. Why does Paul need credentials to verify his ministry and calling from God when the Corinthians themselves were his proof? Several years ago, a group of us from Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, we went to Winder to plant a new church. For years, I drove there and back on Sunday mornings, laying the foundation for this new fellowship. Today, Calvary 316 ministers under the leadership of my son, Pastor Zach. But what if I filled in one Sunday morning for Zach, and just before I got ready to teach, one of the elders leaned over and asked to see my ordination certificate. Hey, we just want some proof you're a legitimate pastor. I'd be a little upset. Hey, God birthed the church, but he gave me the vision. He used me to launch it, and now I have to show them my credentials? How ridiculous is that? Yet this is exactly how the Corinthians were treating Paul. They expected him to show some paperwork when they themselves were evidence of his anointing. Well, The Corinthians were demanding to see Paul's resume. But in verse 2, he tells them that they are his resume. He says, you are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. See, here's an important principle. The proof of a man's ministry are the fruits of that ministry. I don't care if a pastor has a gold embossed onion skin certificate of ordination in a matted frame. If God hasn't ordained him, all his paperwork is about as valuable as toilet paper. If a man hasn't been ordained by heaven, it doesn't matter how many preachers and how many hands and how many seminaries have ordained him. And sadly, I see this often. Since I'm the guy in the area who affiliates Calvary chapels, people will come to me wanting to be added to the list before they've done anything. They got business cards. They got a website. Just no people. And I have to tell them, we don't affiliate good intentions. How can you be a shepherd if you got no sheep? Before we list your flock, how about getting some sheep? A true man of God won't go out and poach from other churches. He'll lead some people to Christ and he'll disciple them to the Lord. Someone once told me, the way you know you're a leader is to look over your shoulder and see if anybody's following. This was the proof of Paul's leadership. Everywhere he left, or everywhere he went, he left behind a growing church. You know, in the movie, Mr. Holland's Opus, Richard Dreyfuss, he plays a frustrated musician named Glenn Holland. Circumstances conspire to force this inspiring composer to give up his dreams of grandeur and to take a job as a high school music teacher. Mr. Holland never gets to write his symphony, and he views his career as somewhat of a letdown until the final day on the job. All his former students have gathered in the auditorium to show their appreciation and honor their teacher. In fact, one of the earlier student, his earlier students has become the governor of the state, and she's the one that addresses the crowd. She says, Mr. Holland had a profound influence in my life and on a lot of lives. And yet I get the feeling that he considers a great part of his life misspent. 
Rumor had it, he was always working on this symphony of his, and this was going to make him famous and rich, probably both. But Mr. Holland isn't rich, and he isn't famous, at least not outside our little town. So it might be easy for him to think himself a failure, but he would be wrong because I think he's achieved a success far beyond riches and fame. And then the governor, she points out to the people in the crowd and she says to him, look around you. There is not a life in this room that you have not touched and each one of us is a better person because of you. We are your symphony, Mr. Holland. We are the melodies and the notes of your opus. And we are the music of your life. Well, this is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. They are his opus. They are his letters of commendation. And you know, this is true for every Christian ministry. Our legacy isn't the programs we start or the buildings we build. People are our symphony. Ministry is an opus of praise to God, and it is the lives that we touch that become the notes. Well, Paul continues writing to these Corinthians here in verse 3. He says, clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Paul was the pen that God used to write on the hearts of the Corinthians, but he calls them not his epistle, not his letter, but they are an epistle of Christ. The author of their transformation was Jesus. And in the rest of this chapter, Paul discusses the means of that transformation, the new covenant. You know, today we send text messages. We send emails. But when Paul wanted to correspond, he picked up a quill and a parchment. He inked his letters And ink can smear, it can smudge, it can fade over time. As a matter of fact, come to think of it, emails aren't exactly foolproof either. They can get deleted. In fact, there are problems with all forms of physical communication. Books get lost, letters get smudged or fade, emails get deleted, text messages get dropped. And even when the writing remains legible, words alone can still be misinterpreted. Often mere words leave out the tone of the communicator. It leaves out the heart behind what's been said. Ever hit send on an email that ended up being misunderstood? We all have gotten through that. See, this is what happened with the Old Covenant. In Israel, before the coming of Christ, God wrote His will, His law, not with ink, but on stone tablets, the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses, he chiseled into the stone with his very own finger. Talk about conspicuous. Talk about monumental. I would imagine engraved letters in stone tablets are the most permanent of physical forms of communication. But the same problems existed with stone tablets as occur with other forms of tangible correspondence. You see, the problem wasn't what was written, it was how it was written. As with all kinds of physical writings, the mode of communication was tenuous and unreliable. At times, God's people misinterpreted His will. You can do that with things that are written down. 
They took some laws to extremes, and they took certain laws out of context. On another occasion, they actually lost God's law for a period of years. At other times, they simply ignored what was written on these tablets. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments in his hand, it was in essence Dr. God telling his patient, Now take these two tablets and you'll be feeling better soon. But the Jews neglected the prescription. And even the most well-written prescription can't make the patient take the medicine. Say someone recommends a new restaurant across town. And they hand you directions that have been written down on a piece of paper. Now I know that's old school, but that's the point here. You see, having that paper doesn't mean you're going to arrive on time. Why? Because you can lose those directions between the seats. You know, it gets down in that little crack there and it's gone forever. Or you can misunderstand the directions. Or you can spill coffee on them and they all smudge and smear. Or you can roll down the window and all of a sudden the wind blow through and suck them out the car. Or you can just get distracted and misread them as you go. But what if you were in a car with onboard navigation? There's a GPS in the dashboard that's calibrating and recalibrating up-to-date directions in traffic. That GPS will prove far more reliable than what was written on a piece of paper. And this is why God wrote His will in our hearts. You see, God was way ahead of the technology. With the new covenant, God was the first to develop onboard navigation. It's tough lugging around stone tablets. That's why God etches His will into our basic desires and our instincts. He plants His Holy Spirit within us. It's like God installing a spiritual GPS in our hearts. A new nature that keeps calibrating us until we get where He wants us to be. This is the miracle of the new covenant. And here Paul holds it up in contrast to the old covenant. Now though we're not told from our text, it's possible that Paul's detractors were Jews with an undue devotion to Moses and his law. Though the Hebrew prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel had promised a new covenant. Though in the upper room Jesus told his disciples that his work on the cross would initiate a new covenant. Still, this was something that the Jews in Paul's day refused to embrace. God was providing a better arrangement than, than, that would supersede his covenant with Moses. But the Jews wouldn't accept God's new deal, and so they decided to try to discredit its messenger. See, Paul knew the issue wasn't him. It was the covenant he preached. And so he defends himself in this chapter by pointing out the glory of this new covenant. God made him a caretaker of this new, more glorious ministry. He was a participant in writing living letters. Now when we say God replaced the old covenant with the new, don't view that as replacing something wrong with something right. See, the law of Moses was perfect. It's still valuable for us today. We should study the Old Testament. It reveals God's heart for His people. Now, when God replaced the law, think of it as replacing something glorious with something more glorious. 
Think of it as replacing something passing with something lasting. With the new covenant, God upgraded the app. As prophets foretold, God gave us a new and willing heart. God went high tech, you could say. His desire didn't change. He wants his people to love him and to love each other. But he no longer conveys that love on stone tablets. God embeds his love in our hearts by planting his spirit within us. As Christians, we're no longer trying to live up to some external standard under the new covenant. Our transformation, the changes that take place in us, become an inside job. This is why Paul says in verse 4, And we have such trust through Christ toward God. This new covenant is based on faith. We trust in Jesus to work in us. We're always leaning toward Him, always hoping in Him. You see, it takes zero faith to follow a set of directions. I mean, you're just reading what's there in black and white. In fact, you can follow directions begrudgingly or even mechanically. The right attitude has very little to do with you following directions. This was one of the problems with the Old Covenant. People kept the law, but for all the wrong reasons. In some ways, for some people, trying to keep the law made them worse than if they had simply ignored it. All their law-keeping made them self-righteous and proud and stuck up and judgmental toward others. Oh, they might be holy on the outside, but their inner disposition stunk. This is why God opted for a covenant that affects attitudes as well as actions. God gives us a new heart. He changes us from the inside out. We love, not judge. We're humble, not proud. We learn to trust instead of becoming self-sufficient. And this is why Paul writes, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. None of us are sufficient in keeping the law. Israel certainly wasn't. On the very day God gave this old covenant to the Hebrews, they had broken it before the sun had set. As with driving directions, not everyone is good at reading and following what's written. In fact, the worst person on the planet at following directions is yours truly. I have very little sense of direction. Here's the adage at our house. If you want to get to heaven, ask Sandy. If you need to get anywhere else, you better ask Kathy. My wife has a knack for directions. Well, I have a knack for getting lost on my way to work. Obviously, actually, I've observed that most women are better at directions than most men. Have you observed this? It's been said the reason Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years is that Moses was too proud to stop and ask for directions. You succeed under the new covenant not by following the directions. It has nothing to do with our ability to follow the directions. Paul says our sufficiency is from God. Under the old covenant, God handed us instructions and it left it up to us to follow them. But under the new covenant, he plants in us a sense of divine direction. He puts his spirit in our spirit. He writes his will and his ways on our heart. Our job is to lean into him and let him do the work in us. As Paul puts it, our sufficiency is from God. 
I've got a little short video this morning. It's about a little boy who thinks he's Darth Vader. He thinks the force is with him. In fact, he tries to muster up his own power, yet in the end, the only person with any power in the story turns out to be his dad. boys like us. He thinks he's got some power of his own, but he doesn't. The only power he has is what comes from his father. That little boy illustrates the problem with the law that God gave to Moses. Receiving the law, like dressing up in that suit, created the impression that he had the power to keep it. Why would God give him a law that he didn't want us to keep? And in the short run, that was true. But God's bigger purpose in giving us the law was to show us that we couldn't keep it, that we lacked the power. And unless we'd tried, how would we have known? The law proved our insufficiency. Now it's the new covenant. It's the power of our dad in us. It's the power of God the Father that now makes us sufficient. Paul says in verse 6, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. With the Spirit of Christ inside us, a Christian is not just sufficient to love God and live for God, but now to minister for God and to pass on His good news to others. Under the new covenant, the Holy Spirit ministers in us, but also through us. Each of us now becomes ministers. And then Paul adds in verse 6, For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. This is an often misunderstood verse. You know, some folks interpret the letter as a literal reading of the Bible, and they say, hey, try to take the Bible literally, and it kills, it produces death. It's the Spirit that applies God's Word to everybody and to every age differently. That is not what this verse means. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 warns us the Scripture is of no private interpretation. You see, the Bible doesn't mean one thing to one person and something else to someone else. It has a proper context, and it has a correct interpretation that applies to all Christians. But what Paul is saying here, that is if we try to obey God's Word without the power of the Holy Spirit, as under the Old Covenant, it does kill it leaves us defeated and frustrated. It is the Spirit of God in this new covenant that brings us life and power. You know, give someone a task without the strength or tools or skill to do it, and you're sentencing them to despair. When Paul writes, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life, he's saying it's the demands of God's law without the Spirit of God to empower us that brings defeat. In the 1960s, nobody was really bullish on the Chicago Bulls, the NBA team, 
In fact, their tallest player was Erwin Mueller. He's just six foot eight. Once before a game with the Celtics in the midst of a seven-game losing streak, Coach Johnny Curry stood in the locker room. He tried to fire up his team. He said to forward Bob Boozer, he said, Bob, go out there and pretend you're the best scorer in basketball. He then turned to guard Jerry Sloan. Jerry, get out there and pretend you're the best defender the game has ever seen. Then Coach Kerr challenged Mueller. Irwin, pretend you're the best rebounding, shot-blocking, dominating center in the game today. Well, the team was all fired up. They stormed the court. Yet when the game was over, the Bulls had lost again by 17 points. Coach Coach Kerr was so depressed, he didn't really know what to say. That's when Erwin Mueller piped up and said, Don't worry about it, coach. Just pretend we won. <laughs> That's what happens when you live under the law. You're trying to win a game that you just can't win. None of us are good enough to measure up to God's standards. None of us. And if you're too proud to admit it, you end up just pretending. You end up playing the hypocrite. The way to gain God's approval is to rely on His power. God is sufficient. His Spirit gives life. That's what it means. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Verse 7 recalls the initial giving of the Old Covenant. It begins this contrast between the two. It says, But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses, Because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Exodus 34 describes the face of Moses after he had come down from the mountain with the law in his hands. His countenance was actually flush with the glory of God. Call it the divine shine. I like to call it the moglo. (laughs) Moses looked like he had stayed a little too long in a tanning bed. His face beamed. He radiated God's glory. God actually required Moses to cover his face with a veil. His glory was off limits to the rank and file Hebrew. But here Paul tells us the glow faded over time. Like the glory of the old covenant, it waned. It fizzled out. Hey, when God first gave the law on Mount Sinai, it was accompanied with thunder and lightning and shaking. It started out with a bang, but it ended up a dud. The law of Moses was unable to make anyone righteous. It turns out the old covenant was transitory. It gave way to a better covenant. The grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit under the new covenant makes for a more glorious covenant. The divine shine passed away, but the glory of God's grace in our hearts lasts forever. Verse 10 tells us, For even when what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because of the glory that excels, in other words, compared to the glory of the new covenant, the glory of the law looked dull, lackluster, second fiddle. He says, for if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. The prominence and splendor of the old covenant, like the shine on Moses' face, was fleeting. But the significance of the new covenant that Jesus initiated will last forever and ever. He says, therefore, since we have such hope, 
We use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Under the old covenant, the Hebrews were unworthy to behold God's glory. This is why Moses was commanded to hide his facial glory behind a veil. This veil became a symbol of the blindness that existed in the hearts of the Jews. They read the law. They knew its demands, but they were unable to obey it. The law produced guilt, not confidence. It was a source of frustration rather than a sense of freedom. Verse 14 explains the effect this had on the Jews. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. The Old Covenant wasn't just obsolete. It created a spiritual impediment for Jewish hearts. You know, whenever we study the Old Testament and we read passages like Isaiah 53, he was despised and we did not esteem him. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The law, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. When we read these verses that obviously point to Jesus, someone always asks me, Pastor Sandy, it seems so clear. Why don't the Jews recognize Jesus as their Messiah? Have you ever asked that question? Well, there are multiple reasons that we can give as answers, not the least of which are the atrocities that they've suffered from the hands of so-called Christians. But the short answer to that question is verse 14. Their minds were blinded. When Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. It's a spiritual blindness. When the law is read, a pride rises up. The thought is inflamed. Oh, we can do this. We're good people. We're God's chosen. We can earn God's favor. We can keep the law. And it's the Jewish patriotic zeal that keeps them from God. There's only one cure. He says next, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Under the old covenant, men were blinded to God. Under the new covenant, We have an open face. We have an unveiled look into the glory of God. Do you recall the moment when you turned to the Lord? Do you recall that moment? I do. You see, it's not just that Jews who, the Jews who have a veil over their hearts. Everyone who doesn't know Jesus gropes along, feeling guilty, condemned behind that veil. The relentless drone of the law, the law's demands. Do this, don't do that. Do, don't, do, don't. It creates a hopelessness in us. God seems a million miles away to most people. You'd sooner travel to the nearest star than get to God through obeying the law. You can want to see God. You can do all you can to draw close to God, but your nose keeps butting up against that veil of despair. Yet... The moment, the instant you turn to Jesus, you confess your sin. You stop pretending to be what he or she isn't. 
At that very moment, suddenly the spiritual blindness, the veil, is taken off. Do you remember that moment? Has it happened for you? Instantly, you're invaded by a sense of God's presence and pleasure. His spirit takes up resonance. God comes into focus. His glory fills your emptiness. The distance you felt evaporates. You see, the veil is removed. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Verse 17 tells us, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The work that Jesus did on the cross, the Spirit now takes up in our hearts. Neither are our good works. Both are experienced by grace through faith. There's now a peace in God's sufficiency. You know that you're forgiven. You know that you're right with God. You feel free from the sin and the guilt that used to bog you down. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And yet here's what happens to some Christians. We experience that coming to the Lord. We come to Him. The the blinders are lifted. We see His glory. We believe that we're saved by grace through faith. But then we go right back trying to live the Christian life in our own strength. It's as if we think it's our duty once more. As if we're sufficient after all. We go right back to an old covenant lifestyle. Rather than trust more, we try more. We live by grit, not grace. And we end up right back behind the veil. Our faith gets buried under a mound of guilt. Rather than feeling the freedom and the liberty, we're overwhelmed with the bondage of guilt. You see, we have a new covenant, but we live as if we are under the old. Author and speaker Warren Wiersbe, he's traveled extensively across churches all across North America. And Wiersbe writes about what he's observed. He says, there are gospel preaching churches that have legalistic tendencies and keep their members immature guilty and afraid. They spend a great deal of time dealing with the externals. They exalt standards and denounce sin, but they fail to magnify the Lord Jesus. Sad to say, in some New Testament churches, we have an Old Testament ministry. Let's not be a church that emphasizes rules and requirements. Let's be a new covenant church that's all about faith and freedom. As Paul puts it, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Under the new covenant, we no longer dwell on our deficiencies. Our failures have been covered by the blood of Jesus. We're free to live now in the sufficiency of Christ. Are you living in His sufficiency? In 1927, Cecil B. DeMille, he made a famous film called King of Kings. British actor Henry Warner was cast to play Jesus in this film. Well, DeMille was concerned that any behavior by the lead actor deemed inconsistent with the image of Christ might result in some negative publicity for his film. That's why DeMille enforced strict guidelines on Warner. He tried to help him keep up a good and holy image of how he thought Jesus might act. Warner was kept isolated from the rest of the cast. The places he could go, the activities he could do were limited. They were heavily monitored. And yet, as you can imagine, rather than make Warner more Christ-like, all these rules and regulations did was to drive him in the opposite direction. 
He ended up overwhelmed by his alcoholism. Henry Warner was being asked to do what he had no power to do. His desires hadn't changed. He was asking to conform, but nothing had happened on the inside. And this is the problem living under the old covenant. Outward conformity doesn't make you Christ-like. It takes a transformation on the inside. And this is what Paul explains to us in verse 18. He says, but we all with unveiled face. Under the old covenant, it was a blindness. But now under the new covenant, our face is unveiled. We can look. We can behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just by the Spirit of the Lord. Here's what happens to a believing heart when you begin to live under the new covenant. God strips away the veil. It's like walking into a darkened room in the middle of the day and then ripping open the blinds. Suddenly light streams in every corner of the room. Not because you tried hard. Not because you earned the right or proved your worth. But the blindness was removed by simple faith. Jesus did the work. The glory of Jesus pours in and our transformation begins. This Greek word that's here translated transformed is the term metamorphosis. It speaks of a radical change. When a rock crystallizes, or when a caterpillar leaves its cocoon and flies off as a butterfly, we call it a metamorphosis. It denotes a dramatic, a qualitative change. Under the old covenant, we conform to a standard. We produce sort of a holier-than-thou attitude at best. But under the new covenant, we're transformed. We absorb and then we reflect God's love and God's purity, we truly become like Jesus. Paul said the glory of the old covenant faded and diminished, but the glory of the new covenant swells and it intensifies. Notice he tells us that we go from glory to glory to glory. You know that. The Christian life is a progression. The glow grows. And here's how. It's like beholding as in a mirror, under the old covenant, there was a blindness. But on the new, under the new covenant, we can see, we can look, we can behold the presence of God as in a mirror. Here's how you grow from glory to glory. You spend time in the presence of Jesus. The more you spend time there, the more you become like Him. You cling to Jesus. You keep the attention and the focus of your heart Godward, and He rubs off on you. We go from glory to glory by hanging out with Jesus. This is what I hope to do in my remaining days. I want to go from glory to glory to glory. Rather than end up a crotchety old man, which I probably could become, I want to become more pleasant to be around. I want to become more humble, more joyous, more caring. I want my days on earth to be spent going from glory to glory to glory. Once during communion, the Scottish preacher, A.J. Gossip, he exhorted his congregation, Do you believe your faith? Do you believe this I am telling you? Do you believe the day is coming when you will stand before God's throne and the angels will whisper together and say, How like Christ He is. This is not easy to believe. 
And yet not to believe is blasphemy. For that, not less than that, is what Christ promises. This is the glory of the new covenant. That as we look to and trust in Jesus, His glory gets mirrored in us. Do you believe? Under the new covenant, a metaphysical miracle occurs in the believer's heart. We change dramatically, qualitatively. First our spirit, then our thoughts and our attitudes, ultimately our actions. And amazingly, we weren't trying that hard. It comes about through faith, His work in us. We just keep our face toward Jesus. And He affects the transformation. It's God's Spirit who does the work. Under the old covenant, there was a blindness. But under the new covenant, we can see clearly now. All we do, all we have to do, is to supply a sustained look. That's what I want to emphasize. It needs to be a sustained look. Not a peak from time to time. Not just a momentary gaze. Not an over-the-shoulder sort of, well, I'm moving on to other things kind of look. No, we need to give Jesus a lingering look. A fixated focus. Are you supplying Jesus with a sustained look? We can't afford to get distracted. We need to maintain that open face. Oh, the power of a look. This is all that we're asked to do is just look. Fix your eyes on Jesus and it'll change your life. Maintain that focus and you'll go from glory to glory to glory. The Christian life isn't hard. It's easy to do. It's just looking. In the right direction is beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and being changed into that same glory. With unveiled faith, we look to Jesus. This is the new covenant.